If you're able to remain standing, we'd ask you to do so and to open your copy of God's Word to the letter of James, James chapter 1, as we have begun looking at that portion of God's Word recently, and Lord willing, we'll purpose to continue doing so through about Memorial Day or thereabouts. So James chapter 1, I'd like to read beginning in verse 9, we're just reading down through verse 11 this morning. James chapter 1, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, beginning in verse 9. Here's what God's Word says. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We thank you that you have given it through human beings centuries ago, even millennia ago. And yet it was from you, you inspired it. You've given it to your people down through the ages, and it will endure, it will last. Indeed, we thank you for it because it is necessary for us. We need your word. It gives us information that is required in order to know you, to understand you, and to understand our own lives, and we thank you that you've done it so well. We thank you, too, that you've made it clear. You've put it in the languages of people and in a way that we can read it and understand it. Even little children can understand your word. Indeed, oftentimes little ones understand, and sometimes scholars get lost, and yet you've made your word accessible to us. We thank you too, Lord, that it is sufficient. You haven't given us this word and then hidden clues about how to find you or to understand you in, in mountaintops or in deep valleys around the world, but you've put it in your word, and you've given it to us in such a way that, that we can read it and and know of our need for you and how to come to you. We thank you for putting that in your word. And Lord, we just thank you for its authority too, that it speaks to us in a way that we not only should not ignore, we must not ignore, because it is from you, the creator, the sustainer, the judge, the one in whose hand everyone's life is. And we thank you that you've loved us enough to speak to us. So Lord, grant us grace that even as we look at your word this morning, that you would grant us ears to hear. And by your spirit, may we understand and believe you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> when I was in seminary some decades ago, I worked part-time at a hospital. I was an orderly, and that involved doing a lot of lifting and, and uh, various and assorted things. Part of what we would do is sometimes we would set up equipment and one of the things that we used sometimes were, were these blocks. They could be variously called shock blocks or bed blocks. We would use them to elevate the, the head of the bed. And nowadays, they have these uh, electronic beds that they can just tilt electronically. But in those days, you had to actually pick up one end of the bed, stick these blocks under the wheels, and it would elevate the bed as needed for a, whatever the patient needed at that, from that uh, outcome. So one time, uh, my fellow orderly and I were dispatched to go and do this for a, a certain bed. And as we went to find the, the bed blocks or the shock blocks, we found only one of them. 
which doesn't work very well when you need a pair for a pair of, uh, uh, to go under each side of the, of the head of the bed, under each of the wheels at the top. So we, we began to look around for the other missing shock block. And lo and behold, we found it. We found it under the feet of the unit secretary sitting outside. She was using it as a, as a footstool. Now that should be pretty simple, you would think. We would simply go out and say, we need the shock block back, which I did. To which she said, that's my footstool. You can't have it. After a, a period of time, finally going up through hospital administration, going back down to her boss, she finally reluctantly relinquished the shock block so that the patient could have their head elevated as ordered by the physician who was giving her medical care. She didn't understand what it was for. She saw the removal of her footstool as a tremendous inconvenience. She did not understand that it was being used for its intended purpose when we took it from her. I say that this morning because it's easy to misunderstand what God is doing in the midst of trials. Now you might wonder why I'm mentioning trials this morning. Because we started in James reading about trials, didn't we? Way back in verse 2, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He talks about how that tests our faith, it proves our faith, and that it has steadfastness and so forth. And last week, Pastor Joe talked about the need for wisdom and seeking wisdom during trials and how that requires faith, asking God in faith. But now we, we, we just read a scripture in verse 9 that talks about the lowly brother and the rich brother. The rich one, the lowly brother boasting in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Why are we talking about trials? What does it have to do with trials? I would submit to you that the topic of trials that was introduced in verse 2 is still the subject in view. In fact, you go on a little bit further on in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. That throughout this passage, he is talking about trials. Most of the time, we think of trials as adversity, something that happens in our lives which we don't want to have. We don't want to see it. We don't want it to be part of us. But this scripture reminds us that there is more than one side to trial. Sure, there is the mention of the lowly brother. The lowly brother is suffering the trial of being lowly. But then it mentions the rich. The scripture is showing us that there is more to trials than adversity. The scripture shows us that there is also the trial of prosperity. And most of us would say, sign me up for that trial. And yet the scripture tells us that there is a very serious side to the trial of prosperity. So this morning as we look, continuing to look at the, what the word has to say about trials and the, the response that we're given to them, let's look here in, in these verses, these short few three verses, and to see what God instructs us about these things. First of all, he does say in verse 2 that we're meeting trials of various kinds, and that includes trials of prosperity. We're looking today at the, the, these two broader categories of, of being lowly, as it says in verse 9, and being rich, as it says in verse 10. What we might see as we look at this first 
adversity, this first kind of trial, the trial of being lowly, is we might see from the scripture what that looks like. What are some of the uh, adversities that we might be tried by through being lowly? Scripture tells us right here in the book of James some of those things. We could look at this in depth throughout many scriptures and we could be here for a very long time. But James tells us right in the very next chapter something about this. In fact, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, James says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you, stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinction among yourselves and become judges with the evil thoughts? Notice the description that he gives right there between the contrast between a rich brother and a brother who is financially impoverished. The one who is impoverished, we see, has two particular indignities, if you will, that, uh, that might be an affliction to them. One is that they don't have good stuff, or as much good stuff as the rich one. He comes in, it says, in shabby clothing. And we might take that to be an indicator, not only can he not afford good clothing, but he may not have as nice a house, may not have as nice of means of transportation, whether it's an animal or he just has to walk. Maybe his, his, his resume, if you will, isn't as impressive. Maybe the kind of work he does is, is not as fancy as the kind of work the other one does. And then there's the indignity that comes from that, the social indignity. Uh, the one is treated with, with respect, given a good seat, whereas the other one is told to stand somewhere else or to sit at the feet. Sitting at the feet, the, the, in that culture, uh, the means of transportation was through the city streets wearing sandals very frequently. And that's the same route that the animals took that pulled carts. And, and uh, when those animals discharged, they discharged excrement onto the streets. And so sitting by somebody's feet wasn't merely sitting by somebody's nicely sandaled feet. It would be sitting by dirty, stinky feet very often. So this was an insult. And yet, in that context, with that as the kind of mindset, and we see that same kind of thing today, we see that often having a, a lack of income or being considered socially inferior for whatever reason. It might not even be based on income. It might be based on some other reason. There could be treatment which is less than respectful. There could be being ignored while others are, are ushered in. And what he is telling this person is, let the lowly brother. Notice that he is addressing a lowly brother or sister. The word can mean both in this context. He's addressing believers in general, and he's simply using the word brother, but it applies to both males and females. He's saying that if the brother or sister in question is lowly, and that would be in the world's estimation, is treated with this kind of contempt, here is how they should respond. Let them boast in their exaltation. Now sometimes people say crazy things. People can say things that just don't make any sense at all. If you wonder about it, just go out and look on the internet sometime and read what people say in response to comments, in comment sections. You see all kinds of craziness one way or another. 
But this sounds just flat out crazy, doesn't it? Somebody who is treated with contempt, somebody who is not given respect on the worldly level, should boast? In fact, that's an interesting term, isn't it? Boast? Boasting? Isn't that kind of like arrogant? Shouldn't we not boast if we're believers? But it's an interesting thing about this passage. That's the only command in these three verses, is the word boast. Boast. In fact, the word, though it appears in verse 9, it is carried over into verse 10 to the rich. And both are given the command to boast. It's an interesting word. The word that is translated boast, and depending on your translation, may something, say something a little different. It may say take pride in, or it may be, be glad in. It, it is a word that seems to be connected to the basic idea of lifting your head. Lifting your head. And, and, and if you've ever been really down in the dumps, or you've had something really bad happen to you, you, you maybe were playing sports and you messed up and your team lost the game because you did something or you didn't do something, or you said something foolish and you feel like you're an inch tall and your head is down, Lifting your head carries the idea with it of, of having uh, confidence, having respect, having uh, a sense of satisfaction and peace about the circumstances. It's a very biblical term. In fact, back in Psalm 3, we see that term very, being used. Psalm 3, a Psalm of David. In Psalm 3, verse 3, David writes these words. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. The context in which that psalm was written, David was the king of Israel. He had already defeated Goliath. He was beloved, and he was uh, you know, basically a champion, well-liked and cared about by everybody. But he had fallen into sin and as part of that, he had some trouble arise within his family. He had a son named Absalom who came along and began to undermine David. In fact, began to present himself as a better alternative. That if he was the king, man, people would get justice. If he was the king, he would fix the injustices that this David had let stand in place. If he could only be the king. And it came about one day that Absalom got enough support that he marched into the city of Jerusalem and David left. David had to flee with his handful of supporters. Scripture in, in 2 Samuel tells about it. They went out barefoot walking up the Mount of Olives so they could head off to the east. Their heads were covered and they were weeping. You know when Psalm 3 was written? It was written in that context. The full psalm, verse 3 verses of it at least, says this, O Lord, how many are my foes, how many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. David understood in the midst of that terrible adversity that God would be the lifter of his head. And that's the kind of context we're talking about here back in James. That in the midst of such contempt, being a lowly person as considered by the world around us, God has given cause to his trusting people to lift our heads because of, it says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. What exaltation? I mean, if one, let's say, doesn't have much of what the world regards as cause for esteem, 
You don't have the money, you don't have the looks, you don't have the education or some mixture of things. Uh, you're just, or you're, you have the wrong opinions or whatever it may be. And you're on the outs with, with upper crust society and you're seen with contempt. How in the world can you be considered exalted? Praise be to God, God's word gives us the answer. A great answer is given right here in the book of James, continuing on back over in chapter 2, where the problem was, was listed, the, the attitudes of contempt for the poor and respect for the rich. That scripture goes on to say in verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? How can somebody who is a lowly brother or sister be considered exalted? Right there it says, first of all, God has chosen them to be rich in faith. Rich in faith. Now faith is when you see things that you don't see with your eyes. Because if I see something with my eyes, I don't need faith. I don't have to have faith to see this, this pulpit thing up here, this, this thing that I'm putting my Bible on this morning. It's right there. But in order to see God, who is spirit, in order to see Jesus, who has ascended into heaven and is not visibly present with us, I have to have faith. And the scripture tells us that God has granted faith, not just a little bit, but to the lowly in this world to be rich in faith, to have much faith. What a blessing that is, the ability to see what is unseen, the ability to discern something that others don't. While all around us are looking at the things that they have, or they're looking at the, the, the people that they have allied with them, or they're looking at the number of votes that they have, or they're looking at the, the prospects that are visibly present. People who are rich in faith are seeing the fact that there is a God who is in charge of all of it, and that that God who is in charge of all of it has something to do with even the lowliest of people who trust in him. He is a God who sees and who is involved. Scripture tells us in Revelation 13 that there is something called the Lamb's Book of Life. It is a list of people who are the saved, the people who will dwell eternally with God. It tells us a remarkable thing in Revelation 13, that that book was written, that list was filled out before the foundation of the world. You know what that means? That means before we go back to Genesis 1-1 that says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that list was already filled out. That means that if you are a follower of Jesus, or you will be a follower of Jesus even if you aren't yet, that your name was on that list. That means God has always known you in that sense even before the world came into being. Scripture tells us that the hairs on your head are numbered. And if you were to sit down today and try to count them, you probably could get pretty close, but God knows the exact number. But you know what? He doesn't just know it today because he can look down from heaven and count the hairs on your head. The day he wrote that list, he already knew the number of hairs on your head today too. You say, oh, how can that be? Because he's God. He's not some itty-bitty little finite being who, 
who has to stumble his way through life. He understands these things. He knows you. He knows the number of hairs on your head, which means he also knows your circumstances, and he is at work in your life. He is the one who told the Apostle Paul to write that God works all things together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. He is the one who Paul, told Paul to write to the church at Corinth that these light momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Why? As we look to the things that are not seen, not to the things that are seen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are not seen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. That is what God has called the lowly brother to. My friends, if you have lack of possessions, you're treated with little or no respect, you are considered lowly in the world's eyes, but you're trusting in Jesus, you are rich. You've been given to be rich in faith. You've been made heirs of the kingdom of God, which he has promised to those who love him. An heir of the kingdom. Just this, a few days ago, Prince Charles gave up that title and became King Charles III. My whole life, he was Prince Charles. For most of us here, our whole life, he was Prince Charles. For some of us, he was Prince Charles for most of our lives. But he's Prince Charles no more. He's King Charles now. The realization of what that title meant has now become fulfilled. If you are a heir of the kingdom of God, you're not going to ascend the throne. You're not going to be called king and queen one day. That role is permanently filled by God, by the Lord Jesus himself. But the fact that you are a prince or a princess, you are a child of God, you are an heir of the kingdom, right now isn't seen with our eyes, is it? People look at us and they're not impressed. We don't look regal. But God sees us differently. And one day the reality of that will be revealed and we will be seen to be the heirs of God, the children of God. And you know why? Because it says there in verse 5, God has chosen those to be rich in faith. It's by God's choice. It's by God's doing. And there's nobody who can undo what God does. So this morning, you can rejoice if you are among the lowly of the world. You do have an exalted position because God has declared it to be so. And if we look with eyes of faith, while others are trusting in simply the things that they can touch with their fingers and hands, uh, while they're trusting in their bank accounts or they're trusting in their allies of, of, of flesh and bone or whatever they have, you have a greater source of trust. You have a God who has created all these things and who will dispense with them one day, but he will not dispense with you. And what's more, he is present today. The Lord Jesus said, I am with you always. Not one day I will be with you, always with you, even to the close of the age. You have hope today. You have a great hope in Christ. You are in an exalted position. But notice this command does not merely extend to the lowly brother. It extends also to the one who is rich, it says in verse 10. 
let the lowly brother boast or lift his head up, if you will, in his exaltation. And let the rich one lift his head up in his humiliation. Now that's an interesting statement. Why would anybody, first of all, consider the rich to be humiliated? And secondly, if they are humiliated, why would that be a cause to lift their heads? Shouldn't they bow their heads or shouldn't they be uh, disgruntled and, and saddened by their humiliation? But remember, this is God's word and he knows what he's talking about and he is not deceiving us. He is telling us something that sounds surprising, but it's always, as God's word always is, is true. It's revealing a truth to us. What does he mean by the rich going through humiliation? Well, he explains it here. He gives us a, an explanation. Because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. He is saying simply this. Though somebody seems to be prospering right now in worldly prosperity, things are going to change. Things are going to change. That worldly prosperity is not going to endure forever. And he uses the figure of speech of the flower of the grass. This is nothing, a, a new, not a new example. You go back to Isaiah, he uses the same figure of speech, the, the flower of the grass. The, the, the wildflowers that look so beautiful for a season. You go out and you see a field full of them, they can look gorgeous and stunning. You go by a, a couple of months later, there's, they're either not there or they're brown and, and nasty looking because something has changed. I remember a few years back, I, I wanted to, to green up my lawn. It was getting some brown spots. So I went out and I, find, I found a, a kind of grass seed that looked very promising to me in my ignorance. And I got this grass seed and I scraped up the old stuff and put down this new grass seed. And when spring came, man, it was gorgeous. It grew, it was thick, it was lush. I was so glad I had found this new grass seed. Until late June came and July came. And that grass, which was so lush in May and early June, was dead. Because it wasn't made for the climate in which it would eventually have to grow. If you're in Missouri in the middle of July, it's going to be dry and it's going to be hot. And certain kinds of grass will not make it. Life tells us from this scripture here that the things that may be counted as prosperity today, that the world longs for, that people seek after, the fame, the fortune, all the, these goodies that the world seems to hold out to us, they're going to fall away one of these days because we will wither one of these days. But you know what? You don't even have to wait that long because it's not just about when we die. Sooner or later, these things are going to fail in this life too in one way or another. I couldn't begin to recount how many stories I've read or how many people I've known, people who seem to be prosperous and well-off in this world, and then something happened in life and they were miserable and wretched. The things that seemed to promise the joy turned out to be hollow and empty because it was just stuff. The fame of people and their belovedness of you when you have a lot of stuff is very fickle. 
And when your stuff goes away, guess what? All those friends go away too, the so-called friends. And they can't solve the relational problems that you have. They can't solve the health problems that you have. They can't help you when, when that money they've been saving dwindles away through bad investment or through other circumstances that come around. That stuff is going to go away. So why should a person then boast in humiliation? Why should the rich person, should they rejoice then when all this stuff is taken away? I would submit there's one other element about how that stuff can go away or can lose its luster. Because in verse 9, he was talking to the lowly brother, the believer in the Lord. And the book as a whole, James is writing to, back in verse 1, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. He's writing probably to Jewish Christians, though the scripture is not bound merely to the Jewish Christians, but the Gentiles too. And as he wrote these words, he is now writing to the rich, and in particular, those who are rich in the church, people who have means who are in the church. And he's reminding us that if we have wealth, we're going to face the trial of putting our trust in that wealth. If we have physical beauty, we're going to put our trust in our physical beauty. If we have popularity, we might be tempted to put our trust in that popularity. What he's reminding us here is that we need to put our trust in something else. That if you have wisdom and understand that these things are but idols if you put your trust in them, and we have a God who does not withstand idols. He will not stand for them and he will not let them stand. We know that it's best that we dispose of those idols now. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that to have wealth is an evil thing. Scripture shows us many times that there are people of wealth who are godly people. Abraham himself, a wealthy man. Isaac, his heir. Jacob had wealth. We read about David. We read about Solomon. We read in the New Testament about Lydia. She was a wealthy woman, and she opened her home and, and welcomed the, the church, welcomed the disciples. There are people with wealth who... who are believers and who use that wealth well, but there's the catch. People who are followers of Jesus have responded to his call, have understood this truth, that to follow him we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. We understand that everything we have and everything we are belongs to Jesus. That includes if we have nothing, that includes if we have much wealth, we understand that we belong to Jesus, that in fact we were purchased by him when he died on the cross. That means that not only we, but our stuff belongs to him. We are but stewards of what God has given us. That includes things, that includes time, that includes talents, that includes the opportunities that we have in life. It all belongs to him. And if we understand that and we have wisdom, even though we might have wealth now, we would understand that it is not the source of our hope. And we would turn our eyes and our gaze from our wealth to our Lord. And as we do that, we would boast that the 
one who is giving us real hope is not that wealth. It's not the status that people would confer on us because we have money. It's not the, the, the high value that's given to us. People want our opinion. People want our time, our attention. Uh, the Lord has called us to something else, to follow him. And those things that we have are to be used to glorify him. What about this rich person? Scripture tells us several things about riches and the mindset that we are to have. James has more to say on this, but I won't go into detail, but I want to read just a few scriptures, beginning out of James chapter 5. Here's what James will later say about those who are wealthy and are, who are trusting in their wealth. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. That's for those who are putting their trust in their wealth. Here's another one for people who desire to be wealthy because, let's face it, there are those who are lowly who are still very wealth-minded. They may not have wealth, but boy, they'd sure like to have it. And if they could get it, they would. And if they could get it, they would, they would use it for, for comfort and, and, and status that they don't have. Here's what Paul wrote to Timothy. Those who are rich desire to be fall, uh, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So it's possible to not only put one's trust in wealth if you have money, it's possible to put one's trust in wealth if you don't have it. And to seek after it is a huge mistake. But here is what now Paul would go on to say in that same passage. As for the rich in this present age, charge them to not be haughty, nor to set their hopes on this uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Or as the Lord himself said in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Did you hear that last statement? Blessed are the poor in spirit. When we talk about the lowly brother or the rich person, both of them boasting, both of them lifting their heads, they're lifting their heads because their hope is the same. The lowly person, his hope is not crushed because he doesn't have the wealth of this world. He can lift his head because his hope is in Jesus. The rich person who is being given roses and parades and flowers and, 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 and triumphed and celebrated by the world will not be deceived by that. That's going to go away. Instead, they will place their hope in Jesus also. And this wealth that they have will be seen as a resource at God's disposal to glorify him and to serve their neighbor as they follow the Lord. Both of them are poor in spirit. And Jesus said, blessed are them, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Both may boast, not about themselves, but as the scripture says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
Both have a wealth that is immeasurable in terms of worldly wealth. The one who has the eyes to see the exaltation that is offered by God to those with faith will embrace that. The scripture tells us that Moses was such a one. Moses raised for 40 years as a prince of Egypt, raised with all the power and money and status that anybody in his age could have, a prince in the superpower nation of the world at that time, knew that he was a Hebrew. And given the choice of continuing on in his status or joining God's people, he walked away from all that wealth, power, and status and joined with his people and went out and worked for his father-in-law for the next 40 years, chasing his sheep around the wilderness because he would rather choose to be with God's people than to be among the rich of this world who have turned their backs on God. And yet, Moses, I can assure you this, would do it again in a heartbeat. And so would all who understand the truth of this word. Prosperity is more than being rich with money. It's being rich in faith and trusting God. There are trials of various kinds, my friends. Those trials will test your faith. They will test my faith. They will, in fact, prove what kind of faith we have. Because we all have faith in something. Even if you're here this morning and you say, well, I'm an atheist. I am just here just to check out what's going on. My friend, even atheists have faith in something. They're trusting something. They're trusting someone. And what you're trusting will be tested. And according to the word of God, unless your trust is in him, in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord to whom it points, your faith will be found to have failed the test because the day is coming when like the withering flower in the heat of the day, so will anything that is not faith in our God fail. My friends, we are trusting in something this morning. What is that which causes your head to be lifted today? Is it the prospect of having more money or is your head being lifted by your faith in God? If it is, you are blessed. If it isn't, my friends, this morning, I would encourage you and call you by the word of God to turn aside from the idol of wealth and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and then use your wealth as he directs you in his word for his glory. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, we are grateful that you have shown us that the word gives us reality. It shows us something different from what the world tells us. It shows us that the one who is rich in this world may be impoverished in your sight. The one who is considered lowly in this world may be rich in your sight. We are told that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. We're told that those who would save their lives would lose it, but the one who loses his life for your sake will save it. Lord, please grant us the grace to see how the truth of your word is clear and clarifying. Help us to trust even this morning in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to turn aside from idols and to believe in you through your Son, in whose name we pray.
Amen.